Warning, this show contains adult themes and language, including Nazi salutes. Disevidentia is an inability to reliably process evidence, and this is a podcast all about it. This episode was released on December 6th, 2021, and we are discussing disevidentia because it is clear millions of Christian nationalists are suffering from it. I am Squeaky. And I am Mako. We discuss logic and evidence because we're smart enough to know we are not immune to propaganda. You can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash If you spent all your money arming yourself and organizing a local militia on Facebook just to have it disappear days later, you can still like, subscribe, and leave a review to help us out. If you have a paper you have written or a small business to plug, let us know. Today we are going to discuss some misinformation around the Rittenhouse trial, how the Pledge of Allegiance is a tool for indoctrination, and the Southern strategy. I am Mako. And I am Mako. Doppelganger! So what militia disappeared on Facebook? The Kenosha Guard. In response to the the protests and the riots, both were happening in Kenosha at the time, a Facebook group formed to try to organize a bunch of people to defend local businesses, and they called themselves the Kenosha Guard. After news about Rittenhouse broke out, the very next day, the Kenosha Guard removed their Facebook page. So this paramilitary group crumpled at the first sign of opposition? I'm not sure I'd quite phrase it that way. They probably were starting to get more attention than they cared for, or they feared they were about to. Wow, wimps. Yes. As much as explaining our own intro joke is discussing the podcast, why don't we move on to other things about the podcast? Which is what we would like to do in this first meta section. Mm -hmm. So we don't have a huge amount to discuss in terms of corrections, do we? Doesn't look like it. Oh, shit. Yeah, it doesn't look like we have anything other than contact stuff. So it looks like for the first time in about four episodes, we don't have any real corrections. That we know of, yep. Oh, well, this means that someone will contact us two minutes after recording and tell us what we did wrong. Wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah. Just for people who are new or listening for the first time, if you want to read the show notes, you can head up to disevidentia.com, and we have a list of all the episodes, and we have all the sources and a full transcript available up there. We also are on a bunch of the different social medias, but not Facebook. Zuckerberg can go fuck himself. Yeah. All right. Skipping Facebook. If you want to help support us, there's patreon.com slash disevidentia. We also have a Reddit presence at r slash disevidentia. You can tweet at us at disevidentia. We have our own Discord. You can find a link to that in our show notes. Uh, you can email us contact at disevidentia.com. Oh, yeah. You can email us, contact at disevidentia.com. The dot com's important. Oops. Uh, a little important, yes. And we have a YouTube. Just search Disevidentia. Yeah. If you're on YouTube, you'll see it. We have a copy of every single one of our episodes up there. There's a playlist, too, if you want to go through it. Yep. It's probably easiest to listen to it on, like, a podcast app. Like, I use Podcast Addict on my phone. Apple Podcasts in our stats is, like, the second most common one. The third most common one's iTunes. <laughs> kind of goofy. Yep. Doubling, us, doubling up on us, Apple. Okay. On to the discussion. I guess first... The Rittenhouse trial? Yep. Fun times. But first, you need to explain that joke. Uh, so. That's all the explanation we get. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty much no one on social media got the hot takes, right? It seems that way. Especially leading up to the trial, there were quite a few armchair lawyers making calls every which way. I made a few bad ones. Like, I think one of the first things I said was, yeah, he shot three black people. That's why he got off. But as soon as I was corrected and saw sources, I'm like, oh, he just shot three Black Lives Matter protesters. Oh, 
I wasn't there. I couldn't see their skin color. No, I mean, video evidence, but that came after the immediate events. Yeah, I started watching uh, as much as I could, and the normal podcasts I listened to, the feeds came through, and there were a bunch of really bad takes on multiple sides. Yep. And this isn't one of those where it's just conservative said everything dumb. There were plenty of bad liberal takes. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to go super deep into this, just as a heads up to everybody that's listening. We're just going to focus on a number of these bad takes that formed in early on. Yeah, there's a a pretty hearty fog of war around this. It's entirely possible that there are different perspectives that lead to some nuanced opinions. And I I personally don't think you should have been there, and that was wildly irresponsible, but I don't want to say much more than that, because we have some more research to do on this, but we can share some of the real bullshit that's obviously wrong. I'll go one step further. I I will just assert that he shouldn't have been there, and he's an idiot for going there. Oh, no, I'll agree to that. But you can start mincing details about what the self-defense laws are there. Yeah, that's where I think the real debate is. is Did he actually act in a way that preserves the the self-defense claim, but him being there he just shouldn't have he's, he's a fucking idiot for having gone yeah. there by any ethical or intelligent standard so before we talk about law i agree he shouldn't have been there and people are gonna be like but his rights and well you know in this country you're legally allowed to stand in a campfire right you just you can do stupid shit in this country that's yeah. allowed right you can shoot yourself with a gun maybe you can't commit suicide in some places but you can shoot your feet that's allowed i would imagine most people want to be in a position where they're not in danger just basic self-preservation and it's kind of intuitive to not go into an area with active rioting that the police have said they're not going to try to contain yeah like why would you knowingly go into that just well that goes back to the kenosha guard they thought they could do something the police couldn't ignoring why the police back the fuck off yeah 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 that's a whole nother thing but just (laughs) yeah don't be vigilantes people for the love of god don't be vigilantes so let's let's just start dismantling some myths and i guess for sources i've got four sources that cover most of this, and then I picked a, a, a couple others for some deeper places. There's two episodes of the Opening Arguments podcast. That's a real lawyer discusses these things, and he had one pre- uh, judgment, and he went over the uh, a large portion of the trial, and he watched all the footage of the trial. And then one post-judgment, they're really in-depth, and they explain the ins and outs of the laws. And then Legal Eagle had a video on it, and he really goes into w- the fog of war aspect of self-defense. So there'll be links to both of those episodes and the Legal Eagle video. And then Snopes. Snopes does a lot of heavy lifting here in these myths, because so many of them are just objectively not true. Yep. Should I get us started? Yeah, sure. So, tons of people were saying the judge was obviously biased. And one reason was he let Rittenhouse pick his own jurors. Yeah, that's a a bit of a misnomer. I I didn't do too much reading into this. My understanding is that it was a blind pick. He picked lots. Like, names were thrown into a hat. No, I remember seeing a video and there was, like, this actual, like, plastic Uh, rotating thing. Yeah, it was a metaphorical hat. Yeah. He picked at random. He just did the physical picking. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's not enshrined in law or anything. No, that's something that the, the judge in particular yeah. has done in a lot of his criminal cases. Yeah, for for almost 20 years, he's been doing it. Yeah. And it's weird, it's different, but there's no official system for doing it. And what, what they do is they vet a large number of jurors, and there is a jury pool. That way, when jurors do something stupid, like ignore jury instructions, like if the jury instruction says, yeah, don't watch cable news, it might bias you. Then they come in the next day and say all the things they learned on cable news about the trial, they kick that juror out, and... And bring in one of the backups. So that's why they have way more jurors than they need. I think they had 18 jurors and they used 12 for the trial and wound up kicking one or two of them out. Sounds right. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, but Rittenhouse did not engineer the jury in his favor. Another one that we actually left out of the show notes, but just opening arguments covered this one really well. And there's photos for it. Did you see 
the photos of Kyle Rittenhouse leaning over the judge's shoulder? <laughs> I did see that photo, yes. We'll see if we can't get the photo in the YouTube video for those watching it there, and we'll link to it in the show notes for everybody else. Yeah, that was a complete bullshit photo. It's not that the photo was fake, it's that if you use a certain perspective lens and you're at just the right angle and you're near the thing they were both looking at, you can get the stand to be over the shoulder of the judge, even though there was plenty of space between them. And Rittenhouse was leaning far over because he was far as fuck away and wanted a better view, as people do. But it was 20, 30 feet away from Rittenhouse, so he was leaning. It turns out courthouses are large. (laughs) And the room, if you look at it, the room is all sorts of wooden, like, built-in place fixtures. It was, it's a goofy looking room if you look at any of the trial footage. Actually, let's see if we can get a screenshot or something in the YouTube video as well. And for people not on YouTube, we'll link to it in the show notes. But this way, it'll be easy for people to see and judge for themselves so they can see how much bullshit this photo is. So when he was you know, sitting where he was, just the perspective of the cameraman would put Rittenhouse behind the judge. Mm-hmm. So people were saying that this meant that the, budge was, that the judge was clearly biased in, in favor of Rittenhouse, and that's just bullshit. Somebody was intentionally misinforming based on that. Yeah, the, it had the appearance of the judge welcoming Rittenhouse in his personal bubble, so he must be more comfortable with him than he ought to be for a legal case. Yeah. But yeah, not the case. And the last one in the vein of the judge being horribly uh, biased. The judge banned the use of the word victim and insisted on calling them rioters or looters. Well, <laughs> and clearly well, that's bullshit. But all, Every part of this is, is bullshit. But people said that shit. Yeah. So the all of these terms, they are... They, they come with baggage. They have emotional baggage that comes with them. Oh, yeah. Like the word victim, it implies that they did no wrong. That is just, that is something that is carried with the word. It also implies that there, if there's a victim, there must be a victimizer, which is, and both the lawyers mentioned this, yep. that is prejudicial and yeah. presumes guilt in our system that at least attempts to say they're not guilty until proven guilty. And the same goes for rioters and looters. The Both of those are charged terms that imply that somebody is guilty of a particular action. And the motions that allowed, that allowed the people that Rittenhouse shot to be called rioters and looters, the motions that technically allowed for that really prohibited it. It's It was such a technical thing where it was, yeah, if you guys produce all the evidence and we're ready to convict those guys of rioting and looting, you can call them rioters and looters. Yeah, he, the judge specifically mentioned that it would be okay in the closing statements after they've established. Yeah, and even then, they didn't call them that in a... They didn't address that to a specific person in the closing statements. They said in aggregate there were, but they didn't call the specific shot people rioters and looters. Yeah. And and then also, none of this happened at the same time. These were all pre-trial motions where they were trying to agree on ground rules for what they could say and could do. And it was a series of motions where it was like, look, I can't stop you from calling them rioters and looters, but there needs to be commensurate evidence. And that was three or four motions to get that done. And then another one, the prosecution wanted to call these people victims and he was making a special request because normally you can't. And the judge denied that because, well, that's a great way to have a mistrial. Mm -hmm. So the judge was trying to, in that one, that helped the prosecution because if, let's say, they did prosecute Rittenhouse, but the whole time they were calling these other people victims, that's instant appeal material. So we'd be hearing today about Rittenhouse appealing instead of getting off. So one of the things that isn't a myth is how shitty the prosecution did. A lot of people have been saying that the this case will be a case of study that will be used in legal text from here on about what not to do when prosecuting. It is that bad. Yeah, tell us more. But the prosecution 
among other things. I mean, there, there's more that the prosecution did wrong than I am readily capable of listing off entirely. But a few examples off the top of my head. Uh, one, they tried to liken uh, Rittenhouse's playing of violent video games to, to try to claim that he has a, a leaning towards violence in real life. So, Mako, you're a software developer and you've written some code for video games. Uh-huh. What's your kill count? Really high. Uh, outside the games. Oh, oh, at zero. Ah, that's a fine distinction. So when you're playing as, like, the Master Chief, how many have you killed? I, I mean, hundreds easily. Maybe thousands. I'm thinking Covenant, oh, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hundreds, thousands, but zero protesters. Do the Covenant count? Do they support Black Lives Matter? They don't really have an opinion on it. Yeah, okay. I don't think they'd be Black Lives Matter protesters. Okay, then zero. Zero. Okay. So as long as we can tell fantasy from fiction, video games don't make us kill people. There's been, like every time there's a new major study, there's, or a new major uh, shooting event, there's always some study that reinvestigates the link between violent video games and violent actions in real life, and they all come back exactly the same. There is no link. Full stop. We're going to have to have an episode about this one. Okay. Yeah, probably. Because someone's going to complain to us and be like, but my shooting... Well, we live in a gun culture already. Maybe maybe that we have so many guns is why we have so many shootings. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, we, we can totally do an episode on that. Uh, anyway. What about another... the Fifth Amendment thing? Yeah, so... When during the prosecution's cross-examination of Rittenhouse, the prosecution attempted to make an argument that Rittenhouse has had the opportunity to tailor his story to all the information that has come out thus far, and that somehow discredits his story. And that's shaky to begin with, but it has a bigger problem in that you are attempting to infer guilt from someone's silence. Yeah, we have a whole constitutional amendment discussing that one. Yes, the Fifth Amendment. You're allowed, and every legal authority I've ever heard says you should, be silent if there's any chance that you're guilty or that the police will come looking for you. Or even if you're not guilty. Yeah. I showed you a video not that long ago where a dude was rambling on and on, especially if you're not guilty. Do not say things you don't need to say. We have to put that in the show notes now, because that was actually quite a compelling video. It yes. was a lawyer and a cop having a debate about whether or not you should talk to the cops. It wasn't even a debate. The lawyer spoke for like 13 minutes, then the cop came on, and he's like, everything he said is correct. Yep. He then tried to waffle and contradict it and like you should help the police blah 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 no kind of sort of yeah yeah because he was like it's correct technically correct but how am i supposed to find the bad guys if you don't help <laughs> it's like well how do i know you won't call me a bad guy if i help you which was the whole point that the lawyer was making anyway we'll link that that's it's a good watch it's pretty interesting so, other things that were a myth. Mm -hmm. This one got spread around, and uh, I believe major news outlets issued retractions. But uh, some people were saying that guns crossed state lines. And I have another source in here just to go over what Dominic Black, yep. the friend of Rittenhouse that supplied the gun, he testified and what he said, and nothing contradicted him, and there was no evidence to the counter, and his story is astoundingly plausible and borderline illegal. Yeah, the AR-15 was in Dominic Black's possession every time that it was not in Rittenhouse's possession. He even bought the gun for Rittenhouse, but wasn't going to give it to him until it was legal for him to have it. Yep. So that's why nobody went after him, because in emergency combat type situations, you're actually allowed to give guns to people who are fighting. There's weirdly exemptions for that in most state laws. So nobody was even considering going after Dominique Black, especially since he just owned up to it. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with gun culture, a straw purchase is when somebody buys a gun from a dealer and then immediately hands the gun over to someone who shouldn't have it. Like here in Nebraska, felons can't own guns, right? I believe so. And I think in Wisconsin, felons can't own guns. Mm -hmm. But if my buddy, and I don't know he's a felon, asks me to pick up his gun and here's some 
some cash, go pick it up for him, and I go and I pick it up, and on paper it looks like I bought the gun and just handed it to him. Since I'm not a gun dealer, maybe I don't know all the laws, and usually that would uh, slip through a lot of states' laws until this became a, a habit, a thing that felons did to get guns. Doing this, this process, where there's that innocent intermediary, could get a gun into the hands of a felon, inexpensively for the felon, that process is called a straw purchase, and has been made illegal even in most pro-gun states. That's a pretty common-sense piece of gun control that even gun rights activists are generally for. Yeah, it is irresponsible to enable the, the skirting of basic protections for gun purchases. Yeah, so this looks an awful lot like a straw purchase, except for the fact that Dominic Black kept the gun up until the moment it was used, and they even indicated they were planning to give it back to Dominic when they were done until Rittenhouse's 18th birthday. So it's dubiously legal, and no one's going after Dominic for it. Maybe that's okay, because... Gray areas? Uh, after the publicity of this trial, I don't know, maybe something new, but <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to, on that one, I'm not an expert. I'm going to defer to the prosecution. As dumb as they are, they know more about it than me. Well, they know more about law, but it's dubious whether or not they know more about prosecuting. <laughs> <laughs> They've passed the bar exam. I haven't. <laughs> That's why I said they know more about the law. Okay, okay. The gun didn't appear to cross state lines, and groups like the Scathing Atheists, who I normally say are absolutely awesome and beyond reproach, I think need to issue a retraction on this, and they haven't. Yeah. So this one seems to be more a misreporting once from a major news outlet, yeah. and then... People just ran with it over and over. Without ever fact checking themselves yeah which is hard this the system of not having retractions is really difficult for how information is distributed they, they took it for granted that uh, rittenhouse himself crossed state lines from illinois to get to kenosha but yeah he he didn't have the gun when he was going over to kenosha yeah and even if he did the laws that invalidate self-defense that say that like if you're committing a crime you can't defend yourself they don't count here for a variety of reasons but most specifically as legal eagle points out if you are committing a crime that would likely lead to injury that's when your self-defense rights are mitigated or, or removed i don't have a great word for it but carrying it carrying a gun carrying a single gun across state lines is not likely to involve violence Unlikely when the judge threw out the other gun law, just a, somebody being 17 by itself is not likely to cause violence. So it didn't throw out or it didn't uh, throw out his self-defense rights. I think that him going to a protest does, but that's a topic for another episode. Yeah. Going to a protest where there's violence to be a vigilante, I think that should... Okay, I'm not going to say any. There's... <laughs> Even in that, there's nuance, but another episode. Yeah, there's more research to do there. So it's, yeah, that's another thing with the people saying the judge was biased. They threw out this lesser charge. Well, yeah, he did, and I feel it was bullshit in a technicality, but it doesn't change the self-defense aspect of it, which I think is bullshit, but that's the law is written. Yeah. All right, so we've been hammering on a lot of things where people were saying pro-BLM, anti-Rittenhouse things. There's plenty of pro-Rittenhouse bullshit out there, too. Yeah. Like when we stepped over here in our notes, plenty of people were saying Kyle Rittenhouse was defending his grandparents' gas station. Yeah, I found, I didn't even hear that one, but yeah, there's his, no basis for that. Yeah, there's, his grandparents don't have a gas station. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're to take that in good faith, he did at some point interact with a fire in a dumpster near a gas station. Yes. I and mean, some interaction happened. But it wasn't his grandparents. He wasn't asked to be there. Yeah, according to his testimony, he saw the fire. He ran towards it in an effort to extinguish the fire. <sighs> but that still, he's 
Okay, so something particularly malicious about this is if you see the memes that talk about this, as mm-hmm. opposed to just the discussion on social media, there are several like photo image things where they've put text on top of pictures. And they're usually uh, phrased as, if you only watch mainstream media, MSNBC, CNN, uh, you wouldn't know. And then they start talking about the Rittenhouse family gas station, which again doesn't exist. Yeah. So like some of these other things, it seems like it's clearly misinformation. I mean, I think someone is intentionally trying to sow distrust of mainstream media. Yeah. I mean, that's why there's so much more bullshit on both sides than other trials. I mean, if you look at like the Derek Chauvin trial, there was a lot of details going on there too on both sides, but the level of wrong out in the extremes wasn't nearly as broad. There's so much more wrong here. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. Yeah, this trial has been a, a shit show. Beyond the gas station thing, there were other myths where it, people were saying they were defending, or Rittenhouse was defending the family business. Yeah, no, he, he didn't have uh, a family business in Kenosha that I'm aware of. The one business during his testimony that he did claim that he was attempting to defend was Car Source which was a car dealership. A used car lot. Yeah. Of all the places to defend, we're going to go... Do you know the significance of car source? Uh, I don't specifically. I was just going to start insulting lawyers and used car salesmen. I mean, that's totally fair, and I don't want to detract from that. Please do that when I'm done. But car source was the car lot on the first day that uh, rioting actually was happening in Kenosha, I believe on the 23rd. Put that shit in the show notes. Holy shit. Look at this picture Mako just showed me. We're going to have to put this in the YouTube video also. And we'll link to it in the show notes. Car Source had most of the cars in its lot torched. Oh. And I believe he was reacting to that news. Well, okay, so I guess I don't want to dump on used car salesmen now that I learned their stock was torched. They're jerks and douchebags, but I mean, burning their inventory is not the solution. But maybe communicating with them would be, which would make me more sympathetic to Rittenhouse if he had done that. Yeah, yeah, they the they did reach out to the owners of Car Source to ask them, like, hey, did you know that this was happening? And they were like, no, we, we did not ask anybody to defend our lot. We do not want anybody to defend our lot. We have nothing to do with this. It's almost like responsible business owners purchase insurance and then kind of batten down the hatches and back out instead of trying to fight violence with violence. Yes. It's like that state monopoly on violence is useful. If only the police had been there to do something instead of checking the fuck out. Yeah, regrettably, yes. So, this line. Other times I say police shouldn't do things, sometimes I say police should do things. I think police should find ways to de-escalate. It's happened. It happens. Mm-hmm. Not every time, but a lot of these time, a lot of these situations, they don't even appear to attempt to de-escalate. They show up with like tear gas and Yeah, I'm not convinced they do. Cannons. In fact, I, I think de-escalation training itself is declining. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a whole topic for another episode, isn't it? Yes, it is. De-escalation training? But still, self-defense, at least in Wisconsin and Kenosha, doesn't extend to defending property. Defending property you don't own on behalf of somebody you have not spoken to. Just stop. Just don't be a vigilante. It's so fucking obvious. Don't shoot people. Lives are more valuable than property. This isn't hard. This doesn't need to be hard. Beyond car source, where some of the shooting actually happened, uh, there's things that aren't myths, but are just dishonest bullshit, specifically on Rosenbaum and Huber, mm-hmm. right? Uh, both these people were killed by him. Grosskutz was the guy who survived. I think I might have Huber and Grosskutz swapped, but... No, no, no. Grosskutz is the one that did survive. Okay. So people were claiming Rosenbaum was a five-time rapist. Actually true. I'm not going to defend him on that, but I will say he was already convicted and uh, he was going through the legal system or had gone through the legal system for his crimes. I had read that it was... uh, sexual harassment? Was it actually sexual assault? I don't think it matters because uh, Rittenhouse didn't know. Yeah, no, no. For the purposes of Rittenhouse's actions, if Rittenhouse didn't know, it's completely immaterial. Yeah, and uh, 
let's say Rittenhouse did know. Do we want 17-year-old vigilantes to be judged during executioner? No. So it's almost as if people who are already doing their stuff with the legal system shouldn't be shot killed in the streets. And let's just say he was a five-time rapist. What does it matter? It just, no, he was already doing the things he needed to do according to the legal system and was just killed. That's, that's not right. Yeah. And the other guy, Huber... Huber. They're like, he's a wife beater, so it's cool that Rittenhouse shot him. It's like, well... He only was, like, charged with domestic abuse, which doesn't mean wife beater, but people took to mean that. And then also the whole same set of arguments. Rittenhouse didn't know. Yep. And then do we want him running around... Do we want a 17-year-old kid with an assault rifle running around being judge, jury, and executioner for everyone accused of wife beating? Well, I think... Okay, not so much with the rapist, but in the domestic abuse case, I think some people might try to twist that as being having a propensity for violence and thus Huber was the instigator and therefore validates the claim of self-defense in Rittenhouse. All right, so then we can dig into the details. And you can, there's actually a Snopes page dedicated to Huber. Mm -hmm. He was acquitted of domestic abuse back in 2012 and hasn't had any legal issues since. He fought his brother with a knife. Not a wife-beating situation. Seems like a fight between brothers that escalated and then a grandma got involved somehow. Mm. But nobody was critically injured. I think there might have been some choking and some hitting, but nobody was stabbed. And, uh, yeah, he was acquitted from that. I think it was self-defense. If we're going to start saying you were accused of some crime and then got off on self-defense and that justifies killing you, well, Rittenhouse has been accused of some crimes and got off on self-defense. Does that justify killing him? Some people would say, yeah. That's a shit answer. It is. 100%. Don't be a vigilante, people. And the whole thing here, the the logic of all this, uh, it's, I made a situation more dangerous by bringing an assault rifle, and now shit's going down. I'm going to kill people in my new, more dangerous situation. This is now self No, none of this works. None of this is good. This whole, let's believe the people who survived. If if one of these other people had a gun and shot him, and Grosskutz did have a gun, but didn't didn't kill Rittenhouse, if he'd killed Rittenhouse, we'd be hearing his story, mm-hmm. right? And he'd be the one on trial for self-defense, mm-hmm. and he probably would have had a much easier time getting off because a person he shot and stopped killed two other people. So his story would have been open and shut. It's just so... We don't want a culture that... You're starting to, to step into the area that you said you didn't want to step into. Okay. There is nuance here. Okay. This should be its own episode. You're right, there's nuance here. But we don't want a culture where the last man standing gets to dictate what happens. Would you agree you, with that? I, I do agree with that. Yeah. Having that desire does not automatically mean that that is the case here. Or, okay, that's a bad phrasing. It does not mean that we should automatically knee-jerk against the survivor. No, it doesn't. We need to examine the facts. I do agree, but there are so few people speaking up on behalf of the dead people that we get this rampant victim blaming. We get people saying shit like, and literally, the first argument I got into was he went out of his way to go to Kenosha, and now you're defending the child rapist. It's like, I'm like, no, I'm saying we shouldn't have judge, jury, and executioner, and it's where people go. Yeah. And if some, if, if Rosenbaum had survived, he would be able to put up his own defense and say, look, I'm already in the trial system. You think it's okay to kill me? And he would get to say his own thing. <sighs> Yeah. yeah, and you're right, there's details. Both of the lawyers I listened to brought up that point. We don't want a culture where the survivor solely dictates the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with that. Oh, yeah. And that's is dang- is skirting dangerously close to where we didn't want to go. Uh, do we have anything else to say on this? I don't think so. Uh, that would, you know, get the, the hand... The, I lost my train of thought. Blah, 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 blah. 
On to a lighter topic, the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, that sounds pretty innocuous. Other than indoctrinating our children so they'll be receptive to a more violent and Christian national state at the exclusion of people with different religions and races, yeah, that's fine up until that. Oh, but there isn't much of that, right? Um, It's only like that for the past 130 years. Oh. It's been like the purpose. But like only in small areas, right? Well, it kind of covered the whole country by 1920. They kind of made it into law. The Supreme Court ruled on it in 1940 and made it legally. You have to. Well, none of this is good. No, no, it isn't. Let's take it chronologically first, I guess. Sure. It started off in the most American of ways. This uh, preacher named Francis Bellamy wrote the Pledge of Allegiance, and it was recognizable as the modern pledge with just a few words swapped. It was a little bit different, like a couple words swapped. It was like, I pledge of allegiance to my flag of my nation, indivisible, all that stuff. And he wrote this in 1891 because he was one of the people working at a small company that made flags, patriotic literature, and a magazine called The Youth's Companion. I don't, I don't want to call them pamphlets, but he, he made and sold little information pieces. They're too small to be magazines, too big to be pamphlets, but they included, this is going to make it sound way more nefarious than it is, but it was a book of rituals and ceremonies that could be used to tie political and religious groups together. And it included things like saying, hey, at the beginning of important ceremonies, maybe you should have everyone stand together and pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. It seems innocuous enough when you're doing it for the sake of selling flags, one of his products. That's pretty fucking American. Let's create a demand to sell flags and between when he wrote it in 1891 and 1892, he sold 26,000 flags. So he's doing pretty good for himself. Uh, to make it even more American, he wanted to release it on the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's voyage in search of wealth and money. Of course. At the expense of native peoples. Yeah, we didn't need to go in that. We we did a whole bunch on pilgrims a couple episodes ago. Yep. Yeah, Chris, well, we did some. Yeah. Do we need to do an, a Christopher Columbus episode? Maybe. Uh, okay. So... After this came out, he got it into a few schools in 1892, but it was picked up in more and more places until the 1920s. As part of his rituals, he suggested positions and gestures and salutes and things, and he suggested the er, a salute he named after himself called the Bellamy Salute, and we'll include a picture of that in the YouTube video, and we'll link to it in the show notes. You know, we would recognize it today as a Nazi salute. Yeah, that one was particularly bad. But he was having little kids all hold their arms out at like a 45-degree angle pointed towards the flag, and he said some shit like, as if you're reaching out towards hope to be proud of the flag or something. And then Hitler came along, and we're all like, oh, God gotta stop doing that. So in the 1920s, we, we switched from Hitler saluting the U.S. flag to putting our hands over our hearts, and we started having the first sets of uh, state laws come along and say that all of the, all the schools in these states are going to pledge allegiance to the flag each morning, which was great because we wanted to make people loyal to the country during times of war, you know, with the big war in the Philippines in the 1890s, World War One in the 1910s, World War Two in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. Yeah. Around this time, they adjusted some of the words to change it from my flag to the nation's flag. It looked pretty much like the Pledge of Allegiance we have today, except it didn't have the words under God in it. So even though it was written by uh, a Baptist minister, he kept God and country separate. That was interesting. We added that in 1954 when we had the Red Scare and we wanted more people to be afraid of those godless atheists. <sighs> okay, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Uh, the first Supreme Court case was in 1940, where people didn't want to say it, specifically Jehovah's Witnesses. They uh, have a religious prescription against swearing allegiance to anything other than God because they feel that oaths, swears, and pledges of allegiance 
were requests for salvation, and that could only be granted by God, and requesting salvation from other things was sacrilegious. So since the very beginning, they were opposed to the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, at least in their own bubble, that makes sense. Their logic is cohesive enough. It seems like a legitimate use of the religious exemption as opposed to whatever COVID deniers are doing. Yeah. Uh, not that I agree with it, but I don't agree with the Pledge of Allegiance either, so it's like... Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like you're in a situation where whoever loses, you win. <laughs> So in 1940, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses got all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, in like an 8-1 decision, said, no, Jehovah's Witnesses have to say it, have to say the Pledge of Allegiance, otherwise the school can expel them. <sighs> During that period of time, between then and the next Supreme Court decision, there was a ton of violence. A few weeks even recorded as many as 100 attacks per week against Jehovah's Witnesses by other Christian groups. <sighs> Yay, peace on earth, goodwill towards man. I think Francis Bellamy would be rather upset by this. I hope so. We haven't discussed his politics much, but I have reason to believe he's not very pro-violence. We'll get into that in a bit. That's good, at least. The Supreme Court in 1943 had another case where Jehovah's Witnesses brought it all the way up to them, and this time, the exemption for Jehovah's Witnesses was made. Every state pretty much realized that they couldn't enforce religious rules on people, and it's kind of up in the air as to whether or not this means that anyone can sit out the Pledge of Allegiance, but most places will let you if you argue about it, or at least until 2001, where the next major Pledge of Allegiance stuff happened. Oh my god. I had hoped that all this stuff would be just resolved and settled before I was going through school, but you're, you're saying that that's just not the case. Before we discuss the modern stuff, let's round out the chronology. But after 1943, the next big change was 1954, we had the words under God, then 2001, or a bunch of countries start passing more laws saying you have to say the Pledge of Allegiance. So even fairly liberal country or li liberal states are doing it at this point. And uh, there have been a couple challenges that the Supreme Court just hasn't heard because the Supreme Court kind of just ignored these. They're like, yeah, you're saying this is a religious argument, but it just says the word under God. It doesn't prohibit you from worshiping whatever God you want. It can be under any God. But what if you don't have a God? Well, if you ask some of the current Supreme Court justices, it's freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. So fuck off and die. Yeah, it's fucked. Yeah, it's what happens when having only seven when having only seven christian supreme court justices means that having a, an eighth that's catholic is persecution what, what were they saying when i can't remember her name now who the new one oh uh, amy comey barrett yes when amy coney barrett came on how they were saying that it was anti-catholic persecution ignoring that several supreme court justices were already catholic and that they were the largest single denomination and that seven yep. of them were christian and i think that's a common rhetoric from those people <sighs> Constantly saying, oh, Christianity is under attack. Christmas Christ is under attack. Christians do have a Christian persecution complex. Very much so. They said this is not a, a religion thing, so it hasn't been heard yet. So now there's a big legal gray area as to whether or not the Pledge of Allegiance is mandated or is not mandated. And there's legally defensible arguments on both sides. I don't think there's a good argument on both sides. I think only one side is a good argument. You shouldn't be able to make people pledge things. It's a clearly a violation of the First Amendment. Yeah, not only that, but just like, so there is the indoctrination angle to it, but kids have no idea what the hell that they're actually saying. I, I, when I was doing Pledge of Allegiance in school, I sure as shit didn't. I just knew that adults expected me to do it. And so I was like, okay, fine, whatever, let's get this over with. So I don't know. It just seems like a dumb idea to begin with. I completely agree with you. We shouldn't be making people promise things they don't understand. 
I mean, when you're in the first grade, can you spell allegiance? No. Do you know what a nation really is? Do you have any concept of what 300 million people is? I I mean, I could write the number probably after clarifying with my teacher how many zeros it is. As far as nation, like, I could point to the United States on a map, but... That's better than a lot of adults. But that's about it. All of the extra baggage that comes with understanding what a nation is, absolutely not. And who would you say are the people that most defend having children say the Pledge of Allegiance? I don't know, people with rampant insecurities? Oh, you're not wrong. <laughs> I was I was expecting a political faction. Republicans. Uh, okay. So going back to Bell- Bellamy, remember how I said I, I had reason to believe he wasn't big on violence and probably wasn't big on, well, whatever Republicans do today? Yeah. He self-identified as a Christian socialist. That makes a weird kind of sense. Well, because Jesus was a socialist? Exactly. Yeah. The Jesus of myth was all about helping the poor, which Bellamy took to mean the workers. No, and wealth re- redistribution. and Yeah. yeah that, that was yeah. all Bellamy's bag. Okay. So this was all like pro-communist stuff. Maybe not pro-communist, but- like Communists might be a little bit harsh. <laughs> yeah, but modern Republicans would say it's communist. Oh, yes, of it, course. It's not straight supply-side Jesus. <laughs> God damn it. Anything more liberal than hunting the homeless for sport is communism. Wow. Okay, sorry, you were saying? Uh, I just thought that's really interesting that it this nationalist thing came from someone so liberal at the time. He believed in the separation of church and state to the point where when he was plugging nationalism, he kept his religion, even though he was a minister out of it. That's not something you could see today. And then he did it to be capitalist. He did it to sell flags. And he didn't ever think in his wildest dreams that it would be mandated by schools all across the country, even though that's sort of what he was fighting for. But I think he wanted an opt-in system. He wanted schools to accept it. He wanted it to be a cultural phenomenon, not a legal phenomenon. There you go. And now it's both. Uh, Okay, so I did kind of go over those histories pretty fast. See if I can just review that. 1891, Bellamy wrote this. 1892, Bellamy was successfully distributing the Pledge of Allegiance and using it to sell flags. He sold 26,000 flags. Quite a few. Yep. He was getting the pledge in school at that time. Not much news happened except a general slow sort of spread until the 20s when they took his original salute out. They replaced his sort of Nazi-looking salute with the hand over the heart thing. Not much happened with it until the 40s. It was used as a tool of pro-USA propaganda during World War II, of course. But in the 40s, Supreme Court mandated it. Violence rose against Jehovah's Witnesses because they were the people opposing it. And in 1943, Supreme Court went back and said, no, it's not actually mandatory. That's us forcing religion on people. Freedom of speech should matter. 1954, they added under God to it. And then 2001, some more states mandated it. And that's a dubious legal quality. Mm -hmm. So how does this tie back to people manipulating thought? And we did mention a little bit of this earlier. You're talking about indoctrinating little kids. We mentioned, I mentioned using it to make people more loyal or more nationalistic during a time of a giant war. Yeah. Well, I've brought this up before, but repetition is a great way to instill someone with a with a thought or a belief, and totally circumvent their desire for evidence. Yeah, you just kind of passively figure, oh, there must be a reason for it, or this is just the way the world is. Yeah. That type of stuff. Exactly. So if you make a little kid say this five times a week for their whole education, could get them to say it maybe a couple hundred times a year, get them to say that for you know, 15 or 12 or whatever years, however much school they're going to. And then whenever they go to a ball game or other similar events, they've repeated it a ton and you've built a cultural, you've built a piece of culture that 
really convinces people of these words and lets them backfill the explanations they need to stand together. That is, well, that's great when you're trying to, as a leader, push something like McCarthyism or support for the war or some other political movement if you can grab that and run with it. And largely in this country, that's been conservative things. We haven't been able to grab the reins of that and use it for, like, equality for skin color. <laughs> that would be awesome if we could do that. Maybe we could get there without the Pledge of Allegiance, though, because lots of people are saying, you can't be American if your skin's different than mine. Anyway, this so far is all just me making a logical argument. Uh, all the sources I have, and I do have several sources for this. Uh, ThoughtCo has a great timeline. Wikipedia, they really go into... <sighs> They really go into what Francis Bellamy believed. They even have some great quotes, like there's just one sentence. Bellamy offered public education classes with topics such as Jesus the Socialist. What is Christian socialism? Socialism versus anarchy. <laughs> great stuff. Uh, MTSU has a history on the Pledge of Allegiance. And then there's a Medium article, which is largely an opinion piece, but does have some analysis and cite sources that talks about the pledge being used for indoctrination. But it goes further than that. Okay. This phenomena of using rituals and tradition to create culture works so well, they're used and recommended in business. And I have two sources here, uh, another Medium article and redcarpetlearning.com, one of which doesn't call them rituals or traditions, and the other one explicitly calls them rituals and traditions. Both talk about making things happen habitually to instill the company culture you want. Now, of course, company culture is a little different than country culture, but the same ideas exist. One of these is saying, yeah, make a quarterly meeting where everyone gets together and communicates, and, and it is just a big meeting, but if you have a culture of meeting to communicate, you're going to have more of it in general. It's going to be not seen as taboo. People will be able to appeal to, well, don't we have meetings to hash these out? And you'll have more meetings. But that isn't the only place, and that's not that doesn't have academic rigor, which is why I then link to the... Uh, a, a final Medium article called Rites and Rituals, A Modern Perspective. And this individual goes through and cites about a dozen different academic perspectives on religious rituals and their secular counterparts in Western and ancient cultures. And he breaks down a ton of different kinds of rituals and what they mean and how they draw communities and people together. And there's a lot of interesting and thought-provoking stuff in there. And there's a bunch of flowery bullshit prose, too. But if you can have more than one thought-provoking point in an article, you have my, you have my attention. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just kind of going off here. Yeah, keep going. And this, this one article talks about different papers that different archaeologists and sociologists have written and how rituals do build culture. And a lot of it is focusing on the symbolism or elevating one concept with a symbol. Like, he specifically goes on a, for a couple paragraphs about splashing people with water in some religious rituals this means you know we're, we're washing away sin and in others it represents sprinkling of fertility but the idea is everybody involved in the ritual knows that there's a symbolic meaning for this and it gets everyone at least thinking about that idea so if we're talking about rituals that are centuries old and talking about one symbol and it creating a shared meaning if there's a ritual that we're doing every single day let alone once a year and we're all talking about allegiance to the flag and the country for which it stands, there's going to be a lot of talk and a lot of thought about how important this is. Even if the people involved largely don't agree, they've had that conversation so many times. It's taking up so much headspace. There's, I remember as a little kid having several conversations like, is it right that we should pledge allegiance to the country? Just why should I as a fourth grader have the vocabulary to ask if that's right or not? That's ridiculous. 
Hmm. You laugh, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of dismissed it personally. Like, I thought it was a weird at first. And then as I started to become more aware, I just sort of dismissed it. And then going into junior high, we just stopped doing it all together. But well, my junior high experience, we did it twice. We did it once in the morning when we arrived and once after lunch. Weird. Mm. Yeah, I don't remember doing it at all in junior high or high school. It was all elementary. But yeah, like, of course, I, I still thought about the Pledge of Allegiance after the fact and I didn't think too much of it. I was just like, okay, that's well, just it's a weird thing adults want me to do. And even though I recognize that swearing allegiance to a country is like a little bizarre, it, it just... It seemed like I had better things to think about at the time. And yet we still had those thoughts. I agree with you. We had better things to think about. Yeah. And also, for people who can be in the out-group, and something I sort of glossed over earlier, in creating any ritual where some people can't participate, and I don't think this was anyone's intention, but when you create an out-group, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, there's going to be some natural ostracization that happens. Imagine you were in school, and one of the kids just didn't say the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, what are the chances the other kids makes fun of and bullies that one kid? A hundred and ten percent. Uh, yeah. So this creates fundamentally a friction between that one kid and everyone else. Yep. It's ridiculous. Why would you do? What constructive purpose does that serve? Uh, peer pressuring them into compliance? Oh, yes. Yes. Let's live in a country that in its in the first in the first rule for the Constitution, the first amendment to it, we're guaranteeing you the right to say and think what you want in terms of your speech and your religion, uh, except kids are going to pick on you for the first 18 years of your life if you choose wrong. Yep. That's what we got. <sighs> you're laughing, man, but you're not. I hate it. Yeah. And don't get me started on this under God shit. Don't even get me No, no, I, no. Thunder God shit? What? This under God shit. Oh, right, yeah. You kidding me, dude? If we had a Thunder God, that would be way more awesome. At yeah, least I was going to say, what, what do you got to get Zeus? Yeah, Thunder's real. Okay. I don't know. I thought there'd be more jokes there. No, nah, there's a lot of valid things to have against Zeus, to be honest. He was kind of a dick. <laughs> so yeah, I kind of bulldozed through all those sources, but uh, I think we covered all the bases. Do you have any questions that we didn't just address? Well, where would you gauge like the political will about the Pledge of Allegiance? Because it, it feels like the type of thing that is, for a lot of people, an afterthought. So if you try to move against it, people are going to be like, Aren't, don't we have more important things to talk about? But is there anybody that's saying, no, fuck you, this is a... a sacrosanct part of our culture like and how many of those people exist i don't have hard numbers on this but every time it comes up and every time there's a case against it immediately there are accusations that these people are un-american who are opposing it yeah that makes sense so it's part of why atheists get a bum rap whenever we try to say things like well that violates church and state separation people are always like well what about the pledge of allegiance didn't you pledge to under god don't you believe in some god and then you have to have that argument before you can discuss whatever the real argument is yeah so not knowing hard numbers i would say something on the order of the same amount of people staunchly defend the pledge of allegiance in its current form as there are q supporters so i would guess something on the order of 10 to 30 percent of the population almost all of them republican that makes sense yeah and i hate it and it's going to be mostly conservatives because it does really enforce or does really encourage that conservative power structure yeah supporting nationalism is generally good for republicans and it's a form of surrendering of thought which republicans are big on yeah, yeah. This is our first in 22 episodes where we had more than one myth that Democrats only participated in. We've had one or two others, but it was only one per episode. But this time there were like four or five Rittenhouse myths that they viewed. That's I'm not saying Democrats or liberals are perfect, but their track record is so much better. Yeah. I mean, when you start without a God preconception, it's so much easier to be accurate. Well, even then, I don't want to pan it all on religion. It's like a, a certain 
way of thinking that they possess that it just is incompatible with reality. Well, that's why I went straight to religion. I'm not blaming religion. I'm saying if you have the necessary mental failings to believe something without evidence, you can believe other things without evidence. And I'm not trying to say that all people who believe in religion are dumb, but at a minimum they're mistaken, and they can be mistaken the same way again. Yeah. I don't know. I guess in a way, it's like I have a slightly different way of viewing it. But I mean, evaluating evidence certainly plays a part. Well, a lot of people never evaluated evidence to get into religion. They were indoctrinated into it, yeah. which is what the pledge tries to do with nationalism. I, I, I just assert most people in religion were just indoctrinated into it. Yeah. And then the religion which you took as a priori correct, the religious people tell you that it's good to just have faith. Whatever your religion says to do, you just believe that. And if you, being near Christians, that's mostly what I'm familiar with, but I know that other religions prescribe different things. If you're in some religion where your ancestors can bless you, or if you're in some religion where Jesus can absolve you of your sin if you're in some religion where at that point you can just believe that you are righteous and therefore you feel righteous therefore it self-reinforces yeah if your faith is what determines whether or not you're correct then can't you do that for something else so you're, you're self-reinforcing on this one thing you have invented you're now not mentally prepared or equipped to vet the next thing mm -hmm. and that's why there's huge or in my opinion that's why there's huge overlaps when you get to conspiracy theories Let's look at 9-11 truthers, since we already talked about 9-11 a little bit, which is why the Pledge of Allegiance got so many more states passing laws in 2001. Uh, there's not a lot of atheist 9-11 truthers. They're almost all Christian, and they all almost turn rapidly anti-Semitic when you dig into what they're saying. It's not a coincidence. There's a pattern, and I think the causal mechanism is they don't need evidence to justify belief. They just have more belief. So they'll get one shred of evidence, think they've done something amazing because you know, evidence works, evidence is really good, they have something tangible to look at, they don't know how evidence actually works, so they stop before they've deployed rigor or critical thought. You know, they don't feel they need to, but because yeah, it feels right. And then they talk with their peers, which have the same problem, and it reinforces it. And they're like, see, other people agree with me. Keep going. And then you get repetition, which is how we got into this problem in the first place. Yep. Yeah, and in fact, I'm not trying to say any of these people are dumb. In fact, a lot of these people are capable of amazing displays of hyper-intense levels of logic, just not backed by evidence. Doesn't matter how smart and how expert your arguments are if they don't tie back to reality. Hmm. We're way off in the weeds here. A wee bit. All right, let's uh, hop on to the next topic. Mm -hmm. Hey, Mako, remember how I trained artificial intelligence using machine learning? Don't you mean artificial stupidity? These are better. They came with me to the BLM protest. Do you mean of their own accord? Or did you carry them to the protest? This beige one thought it was a good idea. Equality, regardless of chassis color, and... Look at these bullet holes. What the actual fuck happened to it? The white supremacist counter-protesters had a field day. How do you know they were white supremacists? Other than the Confederate flags and swastikas? I, I suppose if you have more, then sure, tell. Well, look, the PC is beige. The artificial stupidity, er, artificial intelligence in the white PC case made it out fine. Not even a scratch? Was there a police report? Anything? The police showed up, but they felt the white PC and the white supremacists were just defending themselves and let them all go. Does this mean you need a new computer? Two. The beige one ejected its Blu-ray drive menacingly near the white supremacist, so they shot it in self-defense. But that's only one computer. Well, the white one thinks taxation is theft and likes the idea of wearing bedsheets, so it left with them. I guess that means you should contact the experts at abkcustoms.com to get your new computer or computers. Don't forget to use the code EVIDENCE to get 10% off. That's a great idea! 
Their team of experts have helped us get so many new computers, I can't believe I almost forgot how helpful they were. Are they on a first-name basis with you yet? Yeah, I am. And they even sold me this beige computer. Their expert tech support might be able to help me with the bullet damage. And that's abk-kustomz.com for a new computer. And don't forget to use code evidence for 10% off. Now that we're done with the light philosophical topic, how about we discuss something heavy, like millions of deaths? Oh. Recently? Like the past two years? Eh, that counts. Uh, so, what's new in COVID? Well, I'd imagine most of our listeners have already heard about the Omicron variant. That is the newest variant that has been identified out of specifically South Africa. Wasn't it just identified by the doctors there, but it's kind of in a small scattering of countries? Yeah, it's in a few countries, yes. Okay. Uh, so it has spread a bit near as we can tell so far. Uh, it has not entered the United States. <laughs> In the time since we have recorded this, Omicron has been detected in several U.S. states. Just as we normally would, we will include a source in the show notes, but as of right now, it's in 27 countries and 5 U.S. states, so it is safe to presume that it's near you wherever you are. We always recommend you take all the appropriate precautions, so mask up, vaccinate, and social distance. Stay safe, and back to our previously recorded conversation. But despite that, you pretty much you can expect it to arrive in the United States. That's our lockdowns and our anti-viral measures. They're not good enough to keep something as infectious as Omicron away from the United States. Unfortunately, it didn't work for Delta. It's not going to work for Omicron. Uh, but Omicron is the newest strain of concern. There's new strains of COVID that are happening all the time. This is a normal part of viruses, uh, but we only identify certain ones that have key mutations that make them particularly problematic. Uh, even the, the original coronavirus that we were just referring to as just coronavirus for the longest time and ended up being renamed to Alpha after the Delta variant became really popular in the media. Now we have Omicron. Uh, although there was another one that was talked about a while ago. I'm getting off in the weeds a little here. There was another one a while ago. Uh, I think it was the Mu variant. I do recall hearing about that, but I don't know the details. The Mu variant was labeled as a strain of concern because it seemed to have the ability to completely bypass all of our vaccines. But unlike Omicron and Delta, it was hardly infectious at all. Worldwide, there was like 3,000 cases, I think. Yeah, that would have been cause for concern by itself outside of the current pandemic, because without the current pandemic, there wouldn't have been nearly as many safeguards in place. Yeah, so it hasn't spread all that much, and they're keeping an eye on it, but it hasn't really become a, a global problem. But okay, now we have the Omicron variant, and it is... Delta on its own was already far more infectious than Alpha, and Omicron steps it up even further. This is exceedingly infectious. But the good news, well, there's a few things of good news and bad news, depending on how you look at it. The good and bad, depending on how you look at it, is President Biden does not feel that Omicron is dangerous enough to warrant new lockdowns or other heavy-handed approaches. He did issue a series of travel restrictions for eight countries in southern Africa, but that's about it. Since it's already in a few European countries, doesn't that mean that those travel restrictions aren't enough? Yes. Mm. Well, that's gross. I don't know what to do or say about that. The good news is that some initial reports about handling those with the Omicron variant have come in, specifically from South Africa. There is a doctor there, uh, Dr. Angelique uh, Coetzee. I apologize if I butchered that. I'm really bad at this. This doctor has had some minor flu-like, or patients with minor flu-like symptoms come in. They just thought it was a regular flu. They did some testing and the COVID test uh, pinged positive. 
So they were surprised, but they've only treated seven patients. So this is a lesson on sample size. Take this with a little bit of a grain of salt, but it is encouraging, at least initially, that these patients exhibited extremely mild symptoms. Uh, Symptoms so mild that the doctor said they could have been treated at home just fine. Well, I guess that's a little bit of good news that this specific variant, if it does get out, doesn't warrant. If those numbers scale to statistically significant levels Mm -hmm. and we're still seeing very few of the severe symptoms, that's good news. I would much rather have a pandemic that is just, here's another flu-like thing. Not that the flu isn't bad, but the flu kills tens of thousands of people each year and... Yeah. COVID kills a couple million people each year. That's a it's a she, big improvement. She did specify that there was no loss of taste or smell. And even when they checked oxygen levels in their blood, there was no apparent drop in oxygen levels. This is still only seven people, though. Only seven people. So in normal COVID distributions, you're looking at something like one to five people dying out of 100. You're looking at something like 20 to 40 people getting long COVID, which could include strokes or permanent loss of sense of smell. Even mm-hmm. had someone mentioned that they had someone with that in our Discord recently. And then you have the other 40 to 60% of people that either have a mild case, which might mean being bedridden for a couple days, all the way down to people who almost don't have symptoms. They're, you know, sniffles, and they're just very contagious. It's entirely possible that just these seven people, if you randomly picked them out of 100, you could get a bunch of people that all came out of that large 40 to 60 group that were mild. Yes. And that's a medical mild, not... Might not feel mild. You might feel like you're dying, but you might not be. You might yeah. just be the worst so flu you've ever had. This is in no way definitive. Like, don't like we are probably going to hear cases uh, being more severe than what has been described here. But at least initially, it doesn't seem like it's it's all that aggressive. And a few people have been taking this news and crossing their fingers that Omicron, being as infectious as it is, is going to get past pretty much every lame defense that we have deployed so far against COVID, and it's probably going to do to Delta what Delta did to Alpha. Just outcompete it. Completely. And become 99% of the cases. And if that does happen, and it is tame, then we have a much more tolerable endemic situation with COVID. Then we can get rid of the COVID minute and reclaim those, reclaim these, 10 minutes per episode. (laughs) We could. We still have to wait and see. We don't have enough information yet, but there's a little bit of encouraging information. Do we know anything about vaccine efficacy? Uh, not enough that I feel comfortable saying that's still being tested. So we don't know if this totally dodges the vaccine or if the vaccine is a complete protection. We do know that there are some mutations in the spike protein specifically. And the spike protein is how these vaccines fight the COVID vaccine or fight the COVID virus. But we don't know if those mutations are strong enough to like how they interact with the vaccine at scale. We just don't have that information yet. This virus is too new. Okay. We have reason to be fearful the vaccine won't work, but we simply don't know. Yes. In other general COVID news, uh, just the COVID numbers are up again. It looks like they just kept going up because we're going into the fall and winter seasons and people are doing holiday stuff and getting sick. Didn't want to get too much into specific numbers, but I looked at all the lines. They're all still going up for U.S. and Europe. The holiday season. That's regrettably yeah. to be expected. So some of our sources for the things we just discussed. On the Omicron variant, you cite NPR for an article on the Omicron variant and you cite Reuters for an interview they have with the doctor's uh, discussing Omicron, and I just use the world, uh, the world, uh, the worldometers dot info for the coronavirus uh, numbers and graphs. But you had some other things you wanted to discuss. Didn't a listener bring something to your attention? Yes, uh, I have a friend who is a listener. You know who you are. That came to me talking about 
our coverage of uh, vaccine hesitancy and the mentality that is being approached with it and how some of these things relate to it. Yeah, we've been very uncharitable towards vaccine hesitant people. Yeah, they largely agree with us with what we have to say about vaccine hesitancy, but they also feel that it's a little disingenuous to focus on that because in their experience, very few people actually hold that view. It is a, they believe it is a vocal minority. That's possible, but it's just so many of them that I have no problem finding them for, yeah. if I spend two minutes yelling on any social media, I find dozens of them. They're super easy to find on social media, yes. Yeah, that's so, that's a given. But oh, I recently shouted down a nurse. Okay. And she wasn't a nurse anymore. She got fired by the governor of the state of Washington for not getting a COVID vaccine. Oh, sounds charming. Yeah. And I was, she right in her profile said, fired because of the governor's vaccine mandate. And I said, no one should listen to you or respect your opinion. You're telling people to not get vaccinated. You should be telling people to go to their doctor. Then after I said this, she reported me to LinkedIn. <laughs> she tried to get me kicked off of LinkedIn. And I told LinkedIn, it's like, if you're going to stop me from denouncing anti-vaxxers, your rules are bad. And they let me back in. That's good. And all of her posts and comments disappeared. I think she blocked me. That's fine. And the world became a slightly better place. Slightly. So yeah, so that's why we're so anti-vax is these people, we're dealing with them constantly. And they are hostile and harmful. Yeah. Yeah, and... They are quite loud, and they, they their bullshit does reach a lot of people, and it does real harm. If you talk to a lot of healthcare professionals, stories of burnout in healthcare because of anti-vaxxers are astonishingly common. It honestly makes me wonder what part of healthcare that particular worker was in. Because, like, ER, doctors and nurses in particular... Like, you don't have to go far to, as soon as you ask them, oh, so how is work? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Okay, but how is COVID work? And then just right there, their eyes glass over. They're just fucking done. Like, it's not hard to find. Yeah, if you compartmentalize, you can say, it was just another day at the office. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, almost all the deaths are people who didn't get vaccinated. Yeah, or people are endangering other people that just, yeah. Or, and it has to be terrible working next to these, like, this nurse that blocked me. I can't imagine being someone who understands science and working side by side with someone like that person. Yeah. That's got to be a nightmare. Then, the, like, the early reports of the COVID outbreak, when people would get into the ER and they'd be like, what's wrong with me? And then they'd say COVID and the conspiracy theorists slash anti-vaxxers, they would be like, COVID doesn't exist. Tell me what's actually wrong with me. And they'd be com downright combative with people. And in some cases, they would even try to storm out. But because their blood oxygen level was so low, they would collapse on the way out. So they'd have to be dragged back to the bed just to have everything repeat again when they regained consciousness. And it's like the, the mental model that leads one to be this extreme kind of anti-vaxxer where you distrust the medical establishment to the point where you think doctors are lying to you. Okay, that that at least by itself is kind of cohesive. It's really, really wrong. Yes. But at least it isn't internally inconsistent. But if you hold those views, why are you going to the hospital? Yeah. Oh, it's just, there's just no more logic there. It's like, well, if they're lying and deceiving you to try to put things in your body, you're going to go to a place where you might pass out and they might put the things in your body? That's... None of that makes sense. At some level, their beliefs don't line up with their actions and they don't see it or don't get it or deep down don't believe or are desperate enough to try anything. It just, the logic doesn't pan out. Yeah. So we're getting off on the weeds again. We are. You had a specific thing. I, I did. Uh, but we, we started on that whole rant in order to establish the context of why we are focusing on the loudest voices. And in short, we're focusing on the loudest voices because they're the most damaging. There's a lot of other voices that are less loud, that are closer to reasonable, but I'm not necessarily going to say they are reasonable and there's even some few that are reasonable ish question mark but the 
the vaccines are demonstrably safe. We've just, we've already seen their effects. We've inoculated so many people. Like, there's not really a good reason to be hesitant anymore. Yeah, when we checked the numbers several episodes ago, there were like 4 billion doses delivered and 1.8 billion people totally vaccinated. And a lot of these conspiracy theorists were saying, it'll kill you in a month. Well, if that were true, we'd have 100 million dead. Yeah, so... there'd be a massive, massive cull that it would be impossible to cover up at this point. And that's just not there. I don't know, we're, again, we're getting off in the weeds, but that is why we're focusing on the, the loudest voices. And the listener that contacted me specifically wanted to have a bit more coverage on not the loudest voices and you know, just try to give them a little bit more representation uh, because these, the opinions I'm about to cover are opinions that they are, are in particular are exposed to at work and other social circles. So us ranting about the loudest voices, which is not exactly relatable to them, but these will be. I can imagine it wouldn't be helpful either. A lot of the tactics you deploy on the loudest voices don't apply to people who can yeah. be reasoned with. They will hand wave you as trying to dismiss what they are saying. And I can't even say they're wrong about that. If you try to mislabel them and put words in their mouth, I mean, that's just a, a natural reaction people are going to have. Oh, yeah. I was absolutely trying to dismiss that one anti-vax nurse because she should be dismissed. Well, <laughs> but you're right. You're this reasonable person. Well, even even in the case of the, the nurse that you interacted with, that setting aside interacting with her on a personal level, it's still important to publicly dismiss so that people don't get bad medical advice from this individual. Yeah. The only medical advice we should be taking from the internet is go see your doctor. Yeah, pretty much. And in my opinion, anyone saying less than that, anyone who's saying, be careful of the vaccine... They're automatically wrong, and I consider that, I consider that stance to be anti-vax at this point. Yes. Because it's so demonstrably safe, the only skeptical thing I think can be said about it reasonably is, ask your doctor if it's right for you. And everyone who does that will hopefully get a good answer. Uh, there's, we'll, we'll get into it. There's CDC guidelines for this. Oh, yeah. And we'll get into that. But anyway, they say that hardly anyone is worried about the health drawbacks of vaccine. And... <laughs> Okay, yeah. sorry. I just... <laughs> well, I mean, I hesitate. I'm kind of curious as to what exactly health drawbacks means here. But I mean, if health drawbacks means that you might feel sick for a day or two. Okay, sure. Those are drawbacks. Well, again, those loudest voices won't shut up about the presumed millions of people who are dying. Or recently they've been switching from dying to say people are going to be sterile. But again, yeah. those are the loudest voices, not the moderate voices on anti-vax. Well, they add in their note, uh, there are health drawbacks that are there, but they're about as bad as any other vaccine. So yeah, it is common for when you get vaccinated that you're going to feel drowsy a little bit. Yeah, or some people were commenting they got hit by the COVID vaccine particularly hard where they had to, you know, like take the next day off of work Yeah, because they, they were experiencing, uh, in some cases, mild fever, sometimes congestion, sometimes some other issues, but it was never yeah like life-threatening or long-term. It was always like sleep it off or... Yeah, but... I knew two of those people in my, in my online community. They got vaccinated and they were just knocked out for one whole day yeah my father he, when he got the first shot it didn't really affect him i think he had a his arm hurt for a couple days but when he got his second shot it really fucked with him he had to take a, a day or two off work hmm. yeah so there are health drawbacks yeah as long as we're, we're defining health drawbacks as, as that. that that is yeah. totally a thing yeah uh, but everybody gets over them they're not severe they're short and in this context when you say everyone you're excluding the one in a million who don't because there is about one in a million people who get the vaccine and something horrible happens I am unclear on that statistic. Oh, we've pulled it up in a couple previous episodes. Like, I know about anaphylaxis, but if, like, you get past the first 15 minutes, I'm, I'm unsure about yeah, yeah, that's, more than that. Well, the it's on the order of one in a million in, like, 
times 10 or divided by 10 in either direction where it's okay. super uncommon. But I just mean that's how safe a typical vaccine is before you get major side effects. About one in a million. And it's just a different order of magnitude compared to COVID, which is more like 2% of people with COVID are going to be really fucked, like dead. Yeah. Okay, onwards. Uh, so the problems that these people have is is not with the, the vaccine itself. It is with actually just the mandate and how the mandate has been handled. Or it, specifically how this is written. How ridiculous the mandate is written, if I am to quote this person. Do they have a specific complaint? Uh, they have a couple of examples. So one example is that they have a co-worker who has a history of anaphylactic shock. She applied for a medical exemption, got the medical exemption, and was... Sorry. And she applied for the medical exemption through a doctor? That's my understanding, yes. Okay, so let's run on that presumption. So she got the medical exemption. She presented this to the employer, and the employer, employer just didn't acknowledge it, uh, didn't really care for the exemption. Now, I'm not entirely sure what happened as a result of the employer saying no, but... We can explore a couple thought experiments and say what we think would be right or wrong. Yeah. Well, it just so happens that before this, we looked up what the labor laws in, uh, in Washington State look like, which is where you said this was happening. And we have a source... WA.gov, so the state of Washington government website, and we, we link to the uh, termination retaliation page mm -hmm. for what you can what you can and can't be fired for. A lot of people have probably heard of right-to-work states. These are the least legally encumbered states to work in. You can be fired for any reason, and they don't have to tell you. Mm -hmm. It's like here in Nebraska, right? I could sneeze, and they could fire me. Like, how dare you not work through that sneeze? They could just fire me. And that's going to sound unbelievable to some people, but literally that can happen. And it's really problematic because they fire black people, don't tell them why, and as long as they don't say it's because of race, well, they're fired because of, of race, and they get away with it. States that are slightly more legally covered are states like Washington, which are at-will states. In these states, you can choose to quit pretty much whenever you want, so you're not, like, bound up to work unless you work in a union job, which you can sometimes be, I don't want to say forced, but you sometimes can be uh, put in a position where it's enter the union or you don't get a certain job, but also in Washington, you can ask why you were fired. So it's not exactly a lot of protection, because you can still be fired at any moment for any reason, with a few exceptions, but then you can at least demand a reason, and as long as they don't say they fired you for, like, a race a disability, uh, your religion, or as long as they don't say they fired you for one of those things, they can just say, we had too many people. We fired you because we don't need your job position. Anymore. That's just a thing they can just do there. So if this person was fired because they got a medical exemption, that's being fired for disability. And that would be, at least to my reading of the rules, not allowed. Yeah, there is legal recourse that can be taken at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Still, the well is probably poisoned going back to whatever their job was. It's hard to get your job back if you've been fired and your, your boss doesn't like you. Sometimes judges do mandate that you get your job back. Other times they mandate that they give you pay for so much time. Mm -hmm. So it can be expensive firing people for illegal reasons. But it's not like other places have seen where there's a ton of different legal protections where you're guaranteed your job back, you're guaranteed so many wages, you're guaranteed so many hours, you're guaranteed a lot of things. Yeah. But if this person wasn't fired... That then sounds like the system working to me. They There was a, a mandate. They went to a doctor. They got an exemption. The system worked. The small number of people who really shouldn't be getting vaccinated on fact-based things and a risk of anaphylaxis seems like a fact-based thing if this person has had it in the past. Yeah. I mean, if there was no particular problem, then th there was no particular problem. But uh, the implication is that there was a problem and the implication was firing, but that... All that they said was that the exemption was denied. I don't know what exactly that means. But regardless, I don't think corporations that aren't doctors should be making that kind of opinion and call. That's why we have the doctors. As much as I agree with you, they already do for so many things. 
if you have a job in this country, you're getting your insurance through your workplace. It's it's what medical coverage you get is already determined by where you work. And I think that system is bad and wrong. Yeah. But it's the system we have. This is just one more point of that. That sucks and is terrible, but... I would argue against complacency here, but yeah. Suppose that's fair. Uh, yeah. So this person, so if the exemption was given by the doctor and denied by the workplace, they might not be fired yet. They might be living in some kind of existential limbo while the rules get sorted out. Maybe. And they might get fired or might have to be vaccinated by some date. Yeah. Uh, so I was kind of also wondering about the, let's go with legitimacy of the claim of needing a medical exemption. Because a whole lot of people tried to claim that they should be medically exempt from getting a vaccine. A whole hell of a lot of people. Pretty much if someone tells that to me and doesn't show me the sheet of paper. I presume they're full of shit, and no one's been able to convince me that I'm wrong yet. Uh, statistically speaking, you're going to be correct more than 99% of the time. Uh, yeah, I've so. seen some numbers thrown around that there's only a few thousand people in the whole country that actually have issues where they can't take the vaccine. So the FDA has actually released uh, guidelines for people that should be concerned in seeking medical exemptions for, from the vaccines. And really what it comes down to is if you have an allergy to one of the things that are commonly found in the vaccines that you are taking. And they actually provide a list of these ingredients. Is eggs one of them? Uh, I mean, maybe. This is all being a little bit more specific than that. So, like, potassium chloride is one of them. Sodium chloride. Uh, sucrose. Wait, there are people with salt allergies? <laughs> like, salt is in the chemical that's necessary for the neurotransmitting chemicals in our brains? Yeah, I'm not sure why it's on that list, but it's it's listed here. Well, it might be people with just an extreme... I don't know. Sometimes people's tolerances can be funny. Maybe this is just an exhaustive list, and they don't necessarily mean this is a list of things that people could be allergic to. They're just like, okay, here's a full list if you're allergic to any of these, whatever, talk to your doctor. Uh, so they also mention lipids, and then they get specific with the lipids. I'm not going to try to pronounce most of these. Uh, monobasic potassium phosphate, neat. Uh, dibasic sodium phosphate dehydrate. Yeah, so a bunch of chemically sounding names. And granted, everything is a chemical, but yeah. I hope you take the, the emotional weight of what I'm saying there. It's a bunch of chemicals that likely are there for being preservative or you know getting the various parts of the vaccines where they need to go in the body. And just touching on a few of the other ones that are different between the vaccines, because they do have an itemized list for each of the vaccines here that I'm seeing. Except for Pfizer? Is that one the Pfizer? I don't know. Whatever. So under Moderna, they do mention uh, thromethamine and sodium acetate. Yeah, but we're, we're getting stuck. We're getting lost in the weeds again. <laughs> they, they all have list of chemicals sure yeah fine ruin my fun <laughs> so yeah they have these this list of ingredients and if you have a known allergic reaction to these ingredients talk to your doctor your doctor's probably going to give you a medical exemption uh, the other situation that they did bring up is if you're getting a two-dose vaccine and you have a strong allergic reaction to the first dose okay maybe you shouldn't get the second dose you can also switch over to one of the other vaccines that's possible if you yes you know you can get tested to see what you're allergic to yeah and that is the the general guideline that they offered for that particular situation. So these people that deserve medical exemptions, they do exist, but they are quite rare. Very, very rare. Huh. So yeah, situations like you have had where a bunch of people tell you that they are medically exempt. Okay, yeah, sure, they exist, but they should be able to produce documentation. Okay, then there's like, do they need to present documentation to you of all people? But... No, they don't need to present documentation to me, but I know those people were full of shit because they weren't for any of the good reasons that you get a medical exemption. They said shit like, well, I had COVID back in February, and I'm like, well, oh, that's not good enough. Did you have a COVID test? Like, no, but I had a 
a cold and I've never had a cold in 20 years. I'm like, you're full of shit. Reinfections happen and they actually explicitly state that if you are infected, that's actually cause even more for you to get a vaccine. Yeah. People giving me bullshit answers like that or they'll say that, you know, I have a heart condition. I can't take the vaccine. I'm like, but if your heart is so bad that you're worried about the vaccine, what happens when you get COVID and it kills you? Yeah. It's like your argument doesn't make any sense. My grandmother has had like a, a pentuple bypass at this point on her heart and like one of her lungs barely works and she's diabetic and she got she got the vaccine with the booster and the extra booster because she's high risk and she's got like 14 fucking shots at this point or something and she just did them all under medical supervision and she's okay and if she gets COVID she now has a chance of surviving. Ugh. So many of these arguments are just so fundamentally dishonest. Yeah. I think a lot of those people, they read some shitty article somewhere and they just declared themselves medically exempt. And it's like, that's not how that works. You get a medical exemption from an expert. Yep. And now these people are being forced into getting vaccinated or fucking off and they're not liking the fuck off option. Yeah. And a lot of them are getting vaccinated reluctantly and realizing that it's no big fucking deal. Yeah. Anyway. Which is why vaccine mandates turn out to be popular, because once you're vaccinated, you're like, oh, I have firsthand evidence. If only it works like that at a... It works like that for about one in three people. Yeah, okay. There you go. <laughs> if only though. Maybe for maybe one in four people. I don't know. Okay, so another example was provided about, rewinding a little bit, about how the mandates were written. So they talked about their employer, and they said if their employer hires a subcontractor to build a building on their site, every employee of the subcontractor has to be vaccinated as well. Even the people in different states or countries, if they hire an electrician, whatever. Uh, everyone that works for that company also needs to be vaccinated. It's un uncontrollable and unenforceable. Well, that sounds like a good rule to me, actually. Mandating that more people get vaccinated? Yeah, so... And saying it's unenforceable, that's bullshit. It is technically true, but it's also technically meaningless. What do you mean it's technically true? It's totally enforceable. Maybe not the part with people in other countries, but the rest of it's enforceable. Well, people can fake vaccine cards. When you start talking about active fraud, no law is enforceable. You can't enforce murder. People can hide bodies. Yes, that is why I say it's meaningless. That's the point I was building to. Now, uh, uh, I, I misunderstood you. Right. Yeah, the enforcement mechanism here is pretty obvious, right? It's companies not wanting the liability of violating these rules, write shit like this into their contracts, and if they have reason to suspect that the people they're signing contracts with are being dishonest, they demand to see documentation. If you can't produce enough signed vaccine cards to cover at least your workers that you're bringing onto the site, they go to somebody else because their insurance won't let those people come onto the site. It's not even hard. Yeah. yeah. And the the whatever 1% of people that are being fraudulent about it won't be a, a real problem in the long term. Yeah. So the, the mandate to try to get as many people vaccinated as aggressively as possible is just objectively a good thing. I, I have a hard time feeling sympathy for it. And okay, yeah, sure, some people are going to fall through the cracks, but whatever. If we are in a better position as a result of it, we're in a better position, full stop. And vaguely reminds me of the, the comic where people were talking about climate change and one person like raises his hand and is like, but hold on. What if climate change is a complete hoax and we just make the world a better place for no reason? Like, if something's better, it's better. Like, all right. So do we quote XKCD every episode now? I would like to. Do I got to go get that and put that in the sources? Yes. Yes, you do. Uh, it's a relevant XKCD for everything. We totally could reference them every episode. Oh, this one's not XKCD. Oh. But I have it. Okay. Yeah, it's talking about energy independence, preserving the rainforest, sustainability, green jobs, livable cities, renewables. But what if it's a big hoax and we make the world better for no reason? 
So yeah, with mandates, if we're in a better position, we're in a better position. It, just because you can't get 100% there is not an argument against the mandates. We're not expecting 100%. We know we're not going to get there. But if we can get better, if we can get close enough that we can meaningfully change the way people live their lives for the better, despite this pandemic that is going on, that is reason enough to do it, full stop. And the only reason to keep for people to not seek out these things, just don't even think about the unenforceability of it. The only valid reason to not get a vaccine is when you are told so explicitly by your doctor. And we have the mechanism for achieving that. And that should be a very small swath of the population. Done. And having a mandate that, that forces all these other people to, to get vaccines, it's... I just really don't see that as a problem. Yeah. And if it's to the point where, what is it, we've got 70 or 75% of the population vaccinated. If I'm a contractor and I'm trying to get a job, right, I can advertise, hey, I've got my, my team's all vaccinated already. You can trust us. We got vaccinated because we wanted to. Your insurance will love that because you don't need to pay extra to bring a bunch of potentially unvaxxed people around. Yeah. I hate to say it, but we have a free market system and this is a place where the free market can help. Let's leverage that when it can work for us, which yeah. isn't often... Or as often as I'd like. You're much lower risk if you are vaccinated. And insurance companies love low risk. I don't know if I should be depressed or happy. <laughs> Do you have any other points from listeners? No, that was, that was pretty much it. And just for reference, our COVID minute recording went on for 40 minutes and 25 seconds. I imagine that's going to be halved. Still 20 minutes of COVID yes, minute. that's fine. It hasn't actually been a fucking minute, like, ever. <laughs> We've had it down to three and five. It's <laughs> still more than a minute. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, it's justifiable. We didn't call it the COVID hour. We could start calling it the COVID minutes. COVID minutes? Mm -hmm. I'm stopping the recording. <laughs> We should have done this before starting the recording, but level check. Oh, yes. What are you at? I don't know. You tell me. Oh, yeah. You... <sighs> so, moving away from people dying and world controlling conspiracies, do we have anything pleasant to discuss in the final hour? No. At least tell me it's not a government controlling conspiracy. Uh, not exactly. Ah, uh, there really shouldn't be gray areas here. Uh, I mean, it's not, it's kind of, sort of, government, more political party and, you know, twisting of facts uh, to the point where they're not even facts anymore. Uh, so it's political party conspiracy theories made real. Goodness. Something like that. So we were asked by a patron. Yeah, they didn't explicitly said they wanted to be called out, but you know who you are, patron who requested this. Yep. And it tied nicely into this episode with... Yep. They requested that we cover the Southern strategy. Now, I'll go into what the Southern strategy is here in a moment, but I feel compelled to say that the Southern strategy involves parts of the Republican Party, the parts that they keep quiet about how they approach politics at its core. And so while there are sources and resources available online to research and understand what the Southern strategy is, these sources were not quite as plentiful as I would have expected from something that is essentially amounts to a ongoing history lesson about the Republican Party and how it creates its politics. So I didn't find much in the way of authoritative sources for these things. I did find a few, enough that I can discuss it, but it was a little different from what I expected. So we can't just go by their actions and how they do things like condone people on both sides? How they say that Nazis are very fine people? We can't just go by that? So that's something else... I don't want to say, okay, I was going to say that's something else entirely, but that's not really true. It kind of plays into that too. Uh, so pretty much everything about how Republicans construct their politics is based on this. So, okay, I, I've gone long enough without actually saying what it is. I just need to dive in. So the Southern strategy 
is the tactics used by Republican political strategists to try to capture the Southern vote is the most succinct way I can describe it. Oh, so they're using the mechanisms of state, sound policy. Uh, they want to eliminate kudzu in Georgia, all these noble purposes, righting the wrongs. And since No, southern... none of these things. But surely, since the southern states have the, the highest proportion of, of African-Americans, they're trying to appeal to the African-Americans to get their votes. No, none of these things. Oh. No. So... When this goes back kind of far in our history, well, I'd imagine kind of far as as measured by most of our viewers, uh, there are people still alive from when this all these things were really starting to pick up steam. Long, long time ago, we had Jim Crow. Jim Crow was a group of policies that was aimed at intimidating people of color and minimalizing their impact on politics. And that is a gross oversimplification, but... It's all the racist laws we had after the Civil War, right? Yeah. Okay. Popularity with, like, overt racism and things like Jim Crow, those things were on the decline. People stopped caring, and that opened up enough for us to begin the Civil Rights Movement. But the Civil Rights Movement... When it happened, there were a bunch of people that maybe they didn't quite care. Like they liked the idea of equality, but they didn't necessarily like the way that people were deciding to approach it. Or they wanted equality, but they didn't want to work for it. They wanted equality, but they didn't want laws enforcing it. Yeah, the the second part especially. There were a whole bunch of people that felt that the Civil Rights Act was a gross overstep of government. And it would damage the ability for just people to interact with one another. Never mind that the opposite is true, but whatever. Yeah, let's just ignore 40 years of people actually cooperating, collaborating when race isn't foisted upon them as a barrier. Yeah, silly people. So a bunch of people, particularly Democrats, at this point in time, the South was largely Democratic. They consistently voted blue. The Democrats were also pretty fucked up racists. They were major proponents of Jim Crow at the time, right? Uh, They were a mixed bag, Mm. but I mean, you're not wrong. So the this was before what you're describing was before Democrats tried to replatform on civil rights itself during the civil rights movement. And that move alienated a bunch of Democrats. And the, a lot of them weren't really sure that they were going to jump to the Republican group because they were like, well, what does what do Republicans do for me? Nothing. Yeah. OK. They were debating how big of a deal race was and deciding if they could get more votes by opposing racism or going with it. Oh, OK. So me, right what a moment ago, I was actually describing the mentality of voters. Ah, I see. Because of this deliberation, Republican political strategists decided that they could probably capture a portion of the vote by leveraging that uncertainty. So the idea was to appeal to, in a nutshell, racists, but they knew from just the the dialing back of Jim Crow that they couldn't actually be overtly racist. Yeah, you can't say the quiet part out loud because nobody wants to be labeled a racist. They just want to have the racist policies because it makes them feel good. Or it appeals to something that they have a particular understanding in a personal experience. And even though that understanding is wrong, if someone comes along and tells you, hey, everything is just fine, you're right, then well, you feel better about yourself. Among many, many other issues. I don't want to say that's all there is, but... It's at least one segment of yeah. these racists. Some racists are openly racist. Some racists categorically deny it. And they're even very 
mildly racist. Yeah, there's there's a, a whole spectrum of... So instead of saying that you want to stop supporting blacks, you say, we don't think that these social programs are working. We think there's rampant fraud. Let's remove that social program. The silent part is, we know this program disproportionately benefits blacks. And to the racist, that's the same as it not working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's keeping the, the racist part quiet. And the Southern strategy was an idea by these strategists to maximize that effect and deliver a particular message utilizing this to the South in order to capture their vote away from the Democrats. Uh, TLDR, it worked, but okay, slightly longer. <laughs> the first time that this was meaningfully deployed by Republican strategists on a large scale was with Barry Goldwater. Barry Goldwater was the Republican counter to Lyndon B. Johnson's second term in 1964 for the president of the United States. Now, Goldwater ended up losing by a lot, but he did manage to take a few of the southern states, and Mississippi in particular, he captured 87% of the state vote. That is crazy. That That is the, the biggest swing that they had ever seen in a, in a state. Yeah, uh, if somebody wins an election 65 to 35%, that's a landslide. So getting to 87% is preposterous. Yes. So strategists looked at this result, even though it was a loss, they realized that there was something to this. It was something they could workshop. It was a loss on the national level, but a victory in Missouri, right? Yeah, okay. and, and a, a victory for the idea. Okay. It was a proof of concept that validated that there was something there. So they thought about their message, they retailored it, and they redeployed it for Nixon. And that was a huge success. Nixon got elected. And even... So they could say things like, we're going to be tough on crime, but a lot of people would understand that that means they're going to be tough on... Minorities, who they think are disproportionately criminals. Yep. That's the silent part. <sighs> so... And this is where a lot of these veiled dog whistles come from. When people started saying urban, they meant black people. When people started saying welfare programs, they meant black people. <laughs> <sighs> welfare queens, again, referring to minorities, yes. Yeah. Okay. Although Reagan did mention, like, one, not by name, but there was one person who defrauded social programs for, like, $200,000 in 1960s money. And that was a huge deal. And it's a fraud on for social programs on a scale that has, as far as I'm aware, not been seen since. There was, this is the only case like it. So he very much cherry-picked one specific example, and he made it sound like that's common and used that for justification for cutting back social programs. I'm getting off in the weeds again. Reagan well, was no, terrible. That's a valid point, actually. People who oppose a large group of people only need the one example to make. And this happens in all kinds of social movements where the group in power wants to demonize the people without power. They have time on their side. The people with power can just wait and delay, and the people without power will have to do something desperate at some point because there's a lot of them. Presumably not having power means they're also poor. If you're poor, that means sometimes you do something desperate. So in this case, black people were more likely to steal, not because they're black, but because they're being systematically oppressed. So the case of the Wafra Fair Queen, the, the actual person who defrauded social programs for $200,000 at the time. Was she white? Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so 
they then don't even oh my god okay so that that deflates that previous argument i was making it does work in other contexts not here but he never mentioned her by name he just mentioned her by case details and people who already knew what he was referring to knew and people who didn't fill in the gaps so there were people saying that this person was black even when the biggest fraudster for welfare at the time was yes uh, okay or at least presuming that this person was black now for people who are going to come along and try to deflate this argument they're going to try to say how do we know that the southern strategy was all about race if reagan picked someone who was white what are some other specific so there's actually been a lot of people that have been trying to argue against southern strategy trying to claim that it is a myth in fact when i just googled southern strategy one of the top results that i found was an article from the hill trying to argue that it is a myth don't we have some internal documents from yeah we know that it's not a myth and we know that it's not a myth because of uh, recordings and correspondences between campaign strategists uh, political strategists and other officials talking about their approach and there was even a recording from lee atwater talking about just describing exactly everything that we've been describing like saying like oh yeah you can't be overt with your racism you have to dial it back you have to make it more abstract but there is a limit like you at some point if you just say cut back taxes you're too abstract so you need to be somewhere in between in order to get the message across so we literally have documentation saying that they need to say the the racist part quietly and how quietly they need to say it yes and people still try to claim the southern strategy is a myth when we have first-hand evidence showing it's real and based on race of people discussing it and yeah okay yep we know the southern strategy is real and we have i pulled out a youtube video that is a recording of lee atwater talking about exactly this i was about to say that we shouldn't be trusting youtube videos but then you're like oh it's a youtube video of the original recording yes brilliant yes uh so that is available i'm not gonna bother reading the transcript uh he does drop the n-word a few times and if you want to look at it it is there for your perusal so we know that this southern strategy is real because of these things we have the documentation people trying to say that it's not real are people that tend to hand wave that this documentation exists at all and they focus on irrelevant details generally so are there any people who say this isn't real who are also not racist i i can speculate on that i would rather not Uh, then I'm going to go ahead and presume that no, anybody who denies that the Southern strategy is real is probably a raging racist. I can say that from what I was, when I was looking around, it was overwhelmingly conservatives that were saying that the Southern strategy is not real. I can say that much. Oh, so people the Southern strategy was targeted at and manipulating were claiming it wasn't real. Well, the same camp. I don't know about specifically. I mean, conservatives exist outside of the South, but sure, there's some overlap there. Okay. Okay. Anyway. But even if we're to presume that, okay, they're not racist, they're not the people that are being targeted by Southern strategy, we're still back to what we discussed before about Republicans not being able to process evidence and get props there anyway. And they're also uh, tolerating racists on their team that were attracted by the racism. Yes. I mean, well, if, if they don't believe the Southern strategy is real, then they don't believe they were attracted by racism. You can't use, in their minds, proof of yeah, racism. Yeah, I suppose that's true, but that it still leaves them in the position to everyone who can see evidence of they're not the bad guy, they're just on the bad bad guy's team yeah that's a that's a real fine distinction that doesn't deserve to be drawn when the evidence is publicly available reliable and easily accessible yeah Uh, most of the information that i gathered about the southern strategy is from a interview that was conducted with angie maxwell angie maxwell is a co-author alongside todd shields both of these people did in-depth research about the southern strategy and they wrote a book called the long southern strategy 
And we have a link to that book in the show notes if you want to check it out. Maybe pick one up. But when people just say Southern strategy, usually they're referring to what Andrew Maxwell refers to as the short Southern strategy. And that covers everything from Goldwater to Nixon all the way up until Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter is a Democratic president uh, who ran and succeeded in 1976. And he managed to take back a lot of the southern states away from the Republicans. In fact, he overwhelmingly won the southern states, with the exception of Virginia. And that caused the Republican political strategists to panic. So they once again went back to the drawing board and fashioned the message that they wanted to use to try and recapture the southern vote. And they really honed in on a bunch of things pretty aggressively. Now, they were still using racism, of course, to appeal to racists. But that was not the only camp that they were targeting because they couldn't get the critical mass to consistently capture the southern states from just racists that are responding to racist dog whistles. There's just not enough of them there, as odd as that may sound to some of the listeners. The next group that they particularly targeted was southern white women. And oh, wait, wait. So they're trying to assemble a coalition of racists and southern white women. There's another group that I'll get to in I a just, moment. But yes, I'm just surprised the overlap isn't large enough to just get them by default. But I guess that's me being prejudiced against southern white women. OK. Yeah. Oh, OK. Mm-hmm. So for the southern white women, they decided to attack the notion of feminism. And they tried to argue, I shouldn't say try, they succeeded. They argued that feminism goes against, like, is a violation of gender roles, and therefore it is an attack on family values. Oh my god. So they're trying to assert you can be a good woman and a good mother. Or or a Democrat. You get your choice between one of these things. Yes. I mean, that's not how they phrased it, but yes. I mean, they went through a few more hurdles. It's like, you don't get, you can't be a good person if you want the same freedoms a man has. That's what they're, how did they posh, how did they, oh my, ah, okay. Don't let me interrupt you. You were going to say who else is in the coalition. And then I'm curious how they made these arguments. Yeah, so I didn't really, from the interview, she kind of glossed over a lot of the details for how these arguments were fashioned. So unfortunately, I don't have much in the way of explicit examples of how these arguments were fashioned. Uh, Pretty much what I told you is about as much as I know about their anti-feminism rhetoric and why they decided to use that rhetoric. So yeah, this was successful. They managed over uh, an extended period of time. It wasn't immediate. It wasn't like Southern white women were just like, oh, well, that's definitely my camp. Let's switch now. But there was a large amount of Southern white women that were re-registering. They're, they're changing their party to Republican over the next decade or so. Oh, wow. That is a long-term strategy for a short-term political party. They're really building that coalition. Okay. Yeah. So we've got overt racists, Southern white women, and who else is in this coalition? So that was mostly it, and then that kind of worked for them for a while until like the late 90s, roughly, uh, when they decided to, I don't want to say aggressively push, because like there were pushes prior to this, but to more aggressively push the narrative of gay marriage and how awful that is. They went out of their way to ensure that initiatives for gay marriage appeared on ballots, not necessarily because they thought that they would pass, but because they knew it would cause evangelicals to show up. So highly religious... Southerners is the last group. People yes. who had to vote against gay rights, and that's the coalition. Yes. Anti-feminist women, anti-gay religious people, and racists is the group of people they've assembled. And with their powers combined, the South is completely captured by the Republicans. 
That's like a reverse Captain Planet made of hatred. Yes. Like literally, it's like, do you hate gay people? Do you hate yourself? Do you hate brown people? Come join us. We're the Republic. Oh my God. All right, how much evidence do we have for these second two groups? Uh, again, most of this is from the, the interview itself. Uh, okay, so we're deferring to expert opinion. Yeah, and... It's not quite as good as first-hand recording, but this is pretty good. These people know more about it than we do. Yeah, this is one of the authors. An interview being spoken about uh, from one of the authors of The Authoritative Resource on the Southern Strategy. And if you, again, want to pick up their book, you can read it in hyper detail all you want. But this interview is what I got right now. Okay. Uh, and we have no reason to doubt this because this is no. exactly the kind of behavior Republicans have been doing. Yeah. Whenever I'm arguing with Republicans about rights, they either assert that we don't need equal rights or that we already have them or some other argument that just dodges the need to discuss it in depth, some way to avoid the reality of the situation. Women can vote. What other rights are there? There's no pay gap. I've no clue how many times I've had any of these arguments with Republicans, and it's always disingenuous bullshit, because whatever the argument is, it's we don't need to have the argument. That's what the argument always boils down. There is a wiki article on, or not article, a wiki page on the Southern strategy, and I did start to look over that, but unfortunately, due to time constraints, I did look at the sources at the bottom of the page. They seem to have a number of sources that are not specifically this book, but this book is easily the most sourced source material on the topic so it is the authoritative source but there are others out there and you can look at the the wiki article i wish i had more time to cover all of that but just even getting the information from the interview that i did it's it's pretty damning but yeah republican strategists even knew that most of the people like they had to focus on all three of these issues because most of the people in the south are not all three in fact very few of them are all three a few of them are two of them but most of them are just one of the three so if you want to treat the fact that there's most people are only in one of these camps as a silver lining to all of this, I wouldn't blame you. But yeah. So tying all of this together, everything we've discussed today, mm -hmm. with the Rittenhouse trial, it's clear there's a lot of misinformation being put out there. Yes. I think it's likely there's a lot of disinformation, people actively lying. It looks like it. It's hard to get evidence for that. For specific myths that are being told, I'm inclined to agree. Yes. Yeah. For things like the Pledge of Allegiance, long-term, slow and steady, cultural indoctrination, let's slip ideas in before you can critically think about them, right? There's no other reason to make children that are four years old pledge allegiance. That's ridiculous. Yeah. They don't even know what they're saying. You're just yeah, hammering I, on repetition. I certainly didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And then on this, putting out ballot initiatives to stoke anger. So much of this political strategy rests on FUD. Fear, uncertainty, doubt. 100%. Yes. Racism, fundamentally about fear. A lot of people don't like that. A lot of people want to say it's about superiority or something else. But it's, if you're that superior, why do you need laws to you're, protect you? It's you're bullshit. seeking superiority in order to gain the power to no longer have to worry about something. Some, for some people, yeah. Yeah. But it's, yeah, at some level it breaks down to they're afraid of the other, the different group. Or they're uncertain about the future and want certainty. Or they have doubt that they'll succeed or whatever. Just m m creating doubt, creating uncertainty certainty creating fear that's all of this and getting those people to vote based on those fears there's a lot of manipulation going on and it's long-term and systemic and when we're discussing disevidentia we have to do it in this context when we're talking about people who are making mistakes or failing to evaluate evidence none of this comes alone it all comes together so the conservative who's been saying the pledge of allegiance their whole life does it with a slight nationalist bend they can't help it that's they were born into that system Okay. The people who were very anti-Rittenhouse and prone to believing the things that came out 
started it without being subjected to huge amounts of propaganda and coming at it with a de facto fear of mainstream media that many conservatives have. So a lot of people believed it when some of the left-leaning and more reasonable places said things that seemed true, even if they were later retracted, like the gun across state line thing. Big news outlets said that. Mm -hmm. And some of them retracted it. All the credible ones did. And, and that just has to be part of understanding how we approach this. We all don't have the same background. Even people who value evidence might trust a source, and that source can get it wrong. So we have to vet even our sources that we think are good. We have to cross-reference so often. And we have to understand that people who believe a lot of these wrong things didn't get there with evidence or a value of evidence. They got there largely by circ circumstance of their birth. If you're born to racist parents in Missouri, what are the chances that you're not going to be a, rep a Republican? Pretty low. Or particularly if you're born to racist evangelical parents who have chosen family values over feminism. Right? What are your chances? They're virtually non-existent. Yeah. And this then ties into how the COVID information, misinformation, and conspiracy theories are working. There's been tons of news coverage about how COVID misinformation is being pushed by active Russian troll farm. And that's definitely true to a point. We have documentation showing that certain things were put out there by it, but it can't be all of it because no. we can trace some of it back to the overlap between American conspiracy theorists and QAnon. There just are people who literally think that there's a secret cabal of child brain chemical harvesting space demons that are going to eat going to eat our children and they're spreading mind control stuff in COVID vaccines. And those people are going to put out bad information, but they're not Russian, so clearly there's multiple groups working at it. And these people got to their beliefs in the same shared environment as these other things. And any strategy for fighting this needs to either disentangle it or also coexist in the same environment and gracefully navigate these different layers and kinds of bullshit. So there can't be any sort of one-size-fits-all argument or path to victory. And likely it can't even be an argument. Doesn't matter how fact-based or how eloquent my argument is, if someone believes in the deep space space demons, they're not operating in reality. They're operating in something else. Yeah. Ugh, is a mess. Very much so. Propaganda that you have been given your whole life, even down to the point where it affects the, the manner in which you think, is difficult to break out of because you're locked within that framework of thinking as, even as you try to break out. Yeah. When people hear propaganda, they think... They think 1984. They think the Ministry of Information, like... Ministry of Truth? I was going for what it was called in uh, Nazi Germany. Oh. But yeah, they, they think these government top-down organizations that put a message out there and just spread it. But it can be just somebody with a bit of power. It can be Facebook choosing what the algorithm serves up to you. And if that's Russian troll stuff, because the Russian trolls paid a little bit more money to Zuckerberg to tweak the algorithm, it can be international propaganda. If it's the Pledge of Allegiance every day and it wasn't planned in advance to be propaganda, propaganda it just is useful to the powers that be it's propaganda and we have a ton of these things attacking our rational sensibilities and they're coming after whatever sticks and it's really unfortunate for us living in it because we're constantly bombarded by it and we don't they don't need to win every fight they only need to win some of them yeah and you highlighted it very well with your coverage of the extra coalition building in the southern strategy they didn't need all women they just needed a statistically significant portion of women the women who as you pointed out would choose feminism over family or <laughs> would choose family over feminism they didn't need all of the evangelicals in the south they just needed enough of them so they were poking the buttons with 
with Although, gay rights. Yeah. To be fair, that's quite a few of them. It's it a is. large portion. It is a large amount of them. And I'm sure the same thing's happening with abortion. They don't need everyone who's anti-abortion, but there's enough people who are anti-abortion that it... Yeah, I'm pretty sure most of the politicians who are outspokenly anti-abortion either don't give a shit about abortion or are pro-abortion, but well, they're going to put on a different face. A huge number of them have been in situations where they've leveraged the availability of abortions. Yes. So it's not about actually trying to serve people. It's about pushing people... And that's not how politics should be working. <sighs> disgusting yep and we we can even probably tie in southern strategy into abortions it wouldn't even be that hard this wasn't covered in any of the the stuff that i read but just based off what i read about the southern strategy it's easy to speculate that anti-abortion rhetoric is designed in order to keep people from being able to decide when they have a baby and of course conservatives will be like oh well just don't have sex it's not that hard and then even the slightest amount of research into abstinence only education shows that is grossly ineffective yeah these people weren't educated in proper sex education in the first place and so they don't know how to do it It, i mean it was laughable that the person that was telling me this is somebody who hadn't gotten laid in a very long time and i was like hey look they're not all you but (laughs) (laughs) i actually did respond to him like that and it shut down the conversation really quick but uh yeah if they are not empowered to decide when exactly they are going to have children and they are stricken with the financial burden of a child early on well, you're keeping them at a low socioeconomic status and that affects like yeah, all that, the things that they want. Yeah, that puts people in a situation where it is more difficult for them to for them to challenge the status quo. Whatever information they have, that's what they that's what they get to stick with. They don't have the opportunity to yeah. explore and possibly change their mind. And you can keep running the rhetoric about child murder and you can capture all the people that are I mean, yes, child murder is bad. No, abortions are a separate thing. But you, the people who can't disambiguate you get all of those people and especially the evangelicals because they believe that it is religious doctrine to be fruitful you can't have abortions yeah so i mean it just the whole abortion rhetoric ties into the southern strategy super cleanly <sighs> all right well at least we're not ending this one on pure death this is just the cesspool of propaganda and manipulation we all live in damn it that's is that worse so at least if you're dead you don't have to put up with this shit eh, yeah it's probably worse Fuck this bullshit. Okay, that's fair. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to hit on the Southern Strategy before we called this episode? No. All right. Well, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Thanks for listening. Oh, talking to cops. Oh, yes. Don't talk to police. Okay, I'm going to have to do a fuckload of editing on this. Oh, shit. Thanks to Keldar for video and graphics work, and thanks to AlphaWolf294 for transcription. Thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. Our supporters at the evidence investigator level or higher include Jared, Ducktape, Keldar, Lazori78, Stephen Larrabee, and Kaiju Helena. Still doing it in a single breath. You can read our show notes or contact us at our website, disevidentia.com. Read our subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash disevidentia. You can tweet at us at disevidentia. Visit our Discord server. Link is available in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. Copyright 2021, Blacktop Studios, Inc. Intro music was slow by Pidex, used with permission.